0: We're all tired of the both sides media. Hate it. And in this existential battle, we find ourselves, not with the both sides media, but in between authoritarianism and democracy, we need media that actually defends democracy unapologetically. That's why you should check out the Midas Touch podcast. Good as gold. Hosted by three brothers with diverse backgrounds, the Midas Touch podcast releases daily and is a great source for news and commentary. See why our very own Dan Pfeiffer. Dan Pfeiffer. Called Midas Touch's unique approach to covering the news a quote sign of hope in his latest book. And subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast today. How about that? We're quoting Dan Pfeiffer I books here in the end. Love it. That's M E I D A S T O U C H. Know both sides, just the truth. Endorsed by Dan Pfeiffer, unapologetically pro democracy. Tune in for new episodes daily wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. So Ben, this is like our uh, our podcast Jordan Flu game because <laughs> you're in you're in Greece, right? I'm in you're Athens. Very far away.
1: Yeah, I'm in Athens, uh, and uh, I'm very far away. Uh, and it's very <laughs> hot here, but it's it's nice.
0: It's nice. It's a nice hot. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles, but the Crooked Media HQ internet is down. So, you know, typical thing that happens to a, a media company in 2023. <laughs> so we're doing, a, we're doing a double remote here. <laughs> yeah. But no, nothing can stop us from potting. Uh, We've got a great show today. We're going to talk about uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's visit to the U.S. Trump's Fox News interview about his mar-a-lago documents case interesting legal strategy there to go on tv uh (laughs) tony blinken the secretary of state made his long-awaited visit to china got some big news from israel and ukraine and then just a wild story about the russians maybe trying to kill a defector in the u.s uh facebook censorship in vietnam and then why the former tory party mps don't think anything is funny and they don't want us laughing at them ben so i hope you're ready to not laugh at that
1: uh absolutely won't be laughing at that at all, Tommy.
0: <laughs> no no question. There's nothing funny about Boris Johnson or <laughs> Liz Johnson. But it was so nice to hear Lammy's voice on the pod last week. I, I miss that man's just pronunciation.
1: And, uh, you know, uh, every time Boris Johnson has yet another fall, uh, it's very good to have David Lammy come on and, you know, just do a little... Articulate and erudite dunking on Boris, you know.
0: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Very polite dunking on (laughs) Boris. Well, let's start somewhere, uh, you know, we probably don't talk about enough given the stakes, which is uh, about the Indian government. So the prime minister, Narendra Modi, is visiting Washington this week. He is getting feted with a state dinner. He's going to address a joint session of Congress on June 22nd. According to the Wall Street Journal, Modi is expected to announce a whole bunch of defense agreements during his visit, including buying high altitude armed predator drones, uh, which will help patrol India's border with China. Ben, remember we set to roll out shit like that all the time? Yeah, be like calling the press. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> like, yeah. Big drone deliverable Big deliverable. You're um, Giving some drones
0: away. <laughs> <laughs> it feels icky. Uh, so China looms large over this whole visit. So the US wants India to be a counterweight to Chinese influence. And that strategic goal, I think, is helping us United States, I should say, look past uh, frustrations about India's purchase of Russian oil uh, during the war, about Modi fanning the flames of Hindu nationalism, restricting press freedom, and the recent conviction of Raul Gandhi, the leader of the opposition Congress Party, for defamation of Prime Minister Modi. Uh, In March Bend, India's parliament even disqualified Gandhi from parliament itself. So he's sort of off the political table here. So uh, Modi clearly thinks this is India's moments. He wants them to get the shine they deserve. They recently surpassed China in terms of total population. India is hosting the G20 in the fall. Modi's very popular back home, so he's feeling himself. So Ben, you know, look, we're not naive here, right? India is obviously a huge and growing player uh, on the global stage. I think the US is India's largest trading partner. We want to pull them away from the Chinese and the Russians. But I'm curious how you think the Biden team should straddle the line between those sort of obvious strategic imperatives and the concerning human rights trajectory uh, in the Hindu nationalism that seems to be growing. And, you know, do you think that making India the third state visit after the French and the South Koreans, does that go too far? What's your make? What do you make of that?
1: Well, I I think this is like one of the most important stories that doesn't get discussed that much because uh, th- there are two aspects of it You know, that you teed up. There's the geopolitical aspect and then the what's happening in India part of it, right? On the geopolitics, it's quite clear that the United States is, is all in on trying to hug India as tight as it possibly can in service of its China policy, essentially. Yep. And all aspects of its China policy. I mean, in terms of like the you know relationships that the United States is trying to cultivate in Asia they've made a big deal about what they call the quad which is essentially the US and Japan and Australia and India you know, have these consultations, have this expanding defense relationship. They've made a big deal of trying to bring India into meetings of the G7. They've made a big deal of trying to increase its defense relationship. India's traditionally bought a lot of its defense equipment from Russia and its arms from Russia. And obviously the U.S. wants to kind of replace that. India is also central to what the U.S. policy is with respect to like, we talked about trying to cut China off from certain technologies and try to you know, cut off investment into Chinese tech sector and Chinese AI, uh, and really decoupling supply chains from China so that we're not vulnerable to sensitive technological or other supply chains running through China. I think the U.S. would like to see a lot of that private sector investment that's going into China kind of shift over time into India. And so it's a huge mm-hmm. bet on India. And frankly, it builds off of multiple administrations <laughs> that have been trying to move in this direction. Um, and there's a lot of reason for that. India's like the biggest country in the world, right? And India is has a huge border with China. India's had tensions with China, and if you bring India into the equation, I mean the Tommy like the funniest thing to me about this is that when you and I were in government, we used to refer to the Asia Pacific region. Um, it's literally been renamed the Indo-Pacific region, right? Um, I do love that. Yeah, I love that little detail. It, it's such like a like a foreign policy speak translated into like, you know, the real world. It's like suddenly we're calling this a different thing. Yeah. But that's because they want to to enlarge this conversation so India's at the table as a counterweight to China. That all makes sense, right? That's what you would rationally want to do geopolitically. You want to have as big a team as you can. Uh, you want a country of over a billion people with a huge and growing economy to be part of the answer to these questions, The big problem is Narendra Modi is dramatically been backsliding on democracy. And these are not small things. I mean, this is like pretty brutal treatment of the enormous Muslim minority inside of uh, India. As you said, you know, persecution of the opposition, persecution of journalists, uh, any critics of Modi, you know, face uh, retribution inside of India often. So how do you handle that? I mean, look, we have to be you know, pragmatic about the fact that like it's a country with a billion people, and for a lot of reasons, you want to engage that country. Um, yeah, we in the Obama years, as well. yeah, democracy as well. We, we in the Obama years did on on climate, but I think you can do it if you're going to roll out this bigger red carpet. Uh, I, I'd like to see them at least raise these issues. I'd like to see them raise them pu- publicly. I'd like to see them raise them privately in a polite way. And you can, again, do that in the context of like, hey, we've got our own challenges around democracy. Uh, I think that we make a mistake in believing that Modi would only cooperate with us on China as like a favor to us when like literally we've talked on this podcast time about like wars, you know, like brutal fights on the border between China and India, you know? His troops were beating the shit out of Chinese troops with baseball bats with,
0: like, nails in them at 14,000 feet in in, in the Kashmir. I mean, yeah, right. There's obviously, like, a reason for him to be... To uh, pivot away from the Chinese a little bit.
1: That's right, and and I'm not saying that's a good, I'm not saying that's a good thing. That, that like, but like, the, yeah, it's just reality. Uh, it's just reality, exactly. That like, he is not doing this purely for a transactional reason. So I think you can simultaneously try to bring India into a coalition of countries that are concerned about more aggressive Chinese behavior. Try to develop and support investment into in the Indian economy. Try to bring, as we did, India into climate change solutions while having honest conversations where we see things that we're concerned about. This feels like it's going to be the bear hug without any caveats. And, and I think you can, yeah. you can, and you can affect, I think, Modi a little bit around, you know, certainly on individual cases of people that we're concerned about as just kind of general, um, uh, his, you know, like in the Obama years, Obama would always make a point. And I'm not saying we got this exactly right, but like, you know, if he went to India, had good relationship with Modi, but he'd go out and give a speech about tolerance and the importance of diversity and the importance of uh, rec- recognizing universal rights. I think, I, I hope that they at least have a little bit of that built into this visit.
0: Yeah. And you, I have to imagine that Modi will do like some massive cultural events in, in different cities, I suspect. Um, you know, I was thinking about Ben is it's so interesting. I mean... Now that we're a couple years after the full withdrawal from Afghanistan, it's interesting to see the degree to which Pakistan has just sort of fallen off the radar screen. I mean, we used to constantly talk about kind of balancing relations between India and Pakistan. Remember early on when we created this special envoy for Afghanistan and Pakistan? Richard Holbrook wanted it to include India, but the Indians were so pissed that they sort of like got got it pushed out, right? So there's this constant balancing, and. It's also amazing that, you know, for decades, one of the most dangerous flashpoints in the world was the Kashmir region where India and Pakistan were jockeying for control. India allowed some limited autonomy. Uh, That changed in 2019. India revoked Kashmir's autonomy, sent in thousands of troops, brutalized protesters. And now no one seems to know what's going on there really or ever talks about it. It's just kind of like off the radar screen.
1: Yeah, it's it's a sign of how like some of these issues yeah. You know, I mean, we've talked about the Palestinian issue, right? That, that used to get a lot of att- international attention. Yeah. Uh, there's been an adjustment to new normal and the kind of you know, de facto Indian imposition of full control over Kashmir is something that appears to have just kind of been accepted. It's funny you bring up the Pakistan history. I just want to note, just so people know, we make fun of ourselves on this podcast too. Like We were just as guilty of the Indo-Pacific thing. Do you remember the term AFPAC? Um, oh yeah, One of the of worst, uh, like, I, I'm actually embarrassed that I ever uttered th- those words, but th- like, that's how much we were like, oh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, they're linked, which, which was true. But like, you know, AfPak is, let's just say, I'm glad that one is retired. But it does speak to the fact that like, we used to often view the relationship with India through the prism of counterterrorism and our policy in Afghanistan. And it's very much evolved to geopolitics and like, make no mistake, yeah. like what's complicated about Modi is he is very popular in India. Like, like genuinely popular, in part because of his Hindu nationalist politics, um, in part because he's kind of made India this bigger player on the world stage, and so like you're going to have to deal with this leader, like he's an important figure, but you can, you know, like there'll probably be language about this is the world's largest democracy and the world's oldest democracy, right? India, the world's largest, U.S. the world's oldest, like. That that, like, let's be careful to make sure that if we're talking about that, we're talking about how both of us have a lot of work to do on democracy. Um, and, and I, I, I just think that if there's a full bear hug with no language and no messaging around the importance of respect for human rights, um, it kind of breeds a cynicism that like, as we've talked about before, like the U S only talks about those things when it's like Iran or Venezuela, not when it's like any one of our friends.
0: Yeah. Or somebody we need something from. We'll we'll definitely keep an eye on this one. I'm sure we'll talk about sort of what what came out of the visit next week. But Ben, we did want to go back to uh, what we focused on last week, which was the 37 criminal counts laid out in the indictment of President Trump's stealing of classified documents and hoarding them at Mar-a-Lago and then obstruction of justice. So this indictment comes out, uh, you know, Trump's arraigned, and then he did what I guess every smart defendant does when facing the possibility of years in prison. He went on Fox News to talk about it in great detail with Brett Baer, friend of the pod. Uh, let's hear him out, I guess, and see if he puts this whole thing to rest. So this first clip is Trump explaining why he didn't just return the boxes.
2: We were did talking. ask for it. No. And they said, gave can you give some? the documents back. And
3: we would talk. And then they said they went to doj to
2: subpoena you to get which back. they've never done before right. and you why things, not just hand them over then? because i had a uh, boxes i want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out i don't want to hand that over to narrow yet And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but according to the indictment,
3: you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to
2: say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things, Uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. I would say much, much more, not that I know of, but not that I know of, but everything was declassified. And Biden didn't have the right to do that because he wasn't president. Nor did Mike Pence, by the way, have the right to do that because he wasn't president. Right, I'm not going to.
0: Ben, it is going to be, first of <laughs> all, like on its face, the, the idea that like you can't return the nuclear secrets because you're too busy. I just don't think that's going to fly in any court of law. But, 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 wait, wait, but wait, wait, wait. Be... H-
1: how busy was he? Let's just pause on that one because there's so many things to talk about. The guy's like, like that's you what I want to like, see, though. Yeah, this fat guy in like a golf shirt and a red hat, like playing like you know golf every day like was he, that's that, was he that busy
0: you know that's what the prosecutors are going to do they're going to juxtapose that clip yeah. against yeah. his schedule of yeah. golf
1: literally 7 days
0: a week you had to yeah. go through like 60 boxes yeah. how long does that take <laughs> to pull out the shirts oh, come on man hey, most people go through the boxes of about? the classified documents before you leave the white house
1: i'm sorry I, I cut you off there but it's just like that No, no no many way.
0: well it also as far as we can tell most of them were marked with like big <laughs> <laughs> cover sheets that said "Top Secret." It seems like it would be quite easy to pull out the vast majority of them pretty quickly.
1: Everything he said about it was insane, right? Like the too busy thing was insane. The idea that like he basically self-incriminates by being like, "Well, it's mixed yeah. in with like some golf shirts and some of the like that that like that's how you handled like the Iranian war plan," as like like hard-hitting reporter Brett Baer pointed out, like that like <laughs> if, if his excuses like first that I was busy when he's not busy. Second, that I, oh, I mixed it up with all my other golf stuff, so I had trouble like, going through it. Well, that's precisely what you're not supposed to do. Maybe it was mixed up, Tommy, after the Chinese and Russians came in and photocopied it and shuffled it around. Right. Maybe they just put it back in the fucking Gulf ships, you know? Uh, yeah. M- MBS okay. isn't known for being all that
0: careful. So maybe you just sort of rifled through it. But Ben, you, you mentioned the Iran war plan piece yeah. of this. So this next clip is Trump getting asked about why he waved around the secret Iran attack plan during an interview with two journalists writing a book about uh, his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows.
3: And you were recorded saying that you had a document detailing a plan of attack on another country that was prepared by the U.S. military for you when you were president, the Iran attack plan. You remember that?
2: Ready? You were recorded. It wasn't a document. Okay. I had lots of paper. I had copies of newspaper articles. I had copies of magazines. I know, this I is specifically a
3: quote. You're quoted and, on the know, recording and, saying the document was secret, adding that you could have declassified it while you were president, but, quote, now I can't. You know this is still secret, highly confidential. And the indictment cites the recording and the testimony from people in the room saying you showed it to people there that day. So you say on this injury, on tape just just the opposite. that you can't and, declassify it. Studying. So why have it? When I said is.
2: when I said that I couldn't declassify it now, that's because I wasn't president. I, I never made any bones about that. When I'm not president, I can't declassify it. That's what you
3: said. You didn't I said declassify that. it.
2: I, I said no, no. I said I couldn't declassify could it. But have that was a document, Brett. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. A
0: document per se. Jack Smith
2: is going to call as a
0: witness every single person in that room and make them testify. Like I
1: guess he's just... Trying to win the news cycle day by day, but like, what, what, what does that answer get you? Not much of a victory, even of the news cycle, Tommy. I mean, uh, like, first of all, can you imagine him on like the stand being cross-examined? Like, you know, he's he's flailing around like a like a wet fish uh, out of water. Uh, when Brett Baer is asking questions, like, what's he going to do under actual cross-examination under oath? Like, it's just this kind of blizzard of lies. Uh, He was, like, there's a direct quote of something he said that he, by the way, doesn't deny he said that. He just kind of obfuscates around, like, there's a bunch of newspaper clippings. Like, guess what the newspapers don't have? They don't have, like, the Iran war plan. Um, He also, like, completely, like, basically undercuts his own, Bizarre declassification defense by saying, I wasn't the president. I don't have the ability to declassify. Well, yeah, like you couldn't have declassified the Iranian war plan in the first case. Th- like that's absolutely clear because no one in the US government, no one in the Pentagon was aware that the Iran war plan had been declassified. Then he's saying, like, well, I couldn't declassify anymore. I wasn't president, but it wasn't that document per se. It was a newspaper. Like, if there's a recording, like he's complete toast. Like, I don't know listening to that clip, like how he could possibly defend. Himself, If there really was this recording with this document and presumably they have both the recording and the document. I want to come back yeah. to, just quickly to my favorite hobbyist real quick. Like mm-hmm. who is the audience? for the Mark Meadows biography <laughs> it'd be pretty funny if the first president in American history basically goes down because he was giving like on the record interviews to like some people writing a biography of Mark Meadows Yeah. you know like a book that is destined to be Mark Meadows is going to like be... release
0: it online as a PDF or something <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah, I don't think exactly. anyone's going to read that thing <laughs> yeah, <seriously. laughs> you could hear Brett Barr in the interview she's like come on man like help me help you do better like do better like anything better come on it's fox news we're trying to help you out here <laughs> yeah. but ben th- this um uh, this was probably my favorite part of the whole interview. This is Brett Bear quoting uh, some of Trump's former top aides talking about him.
2: Look, we had the best economy we've ever had this the world time has ever seen. Your vice president, Mike Pence, is running against you. Yeah. Your ambassador to the
3: United Nations, Nikki Haley, she's running against you. Your former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, said he's not supporting you. You mentioned national security Advisor John Bolton. He's not supporting you either. You mentioned attorney general Bill Barr uh, says you shouldn't be president again. I uh, calls you the consummate narcissist and troubled man you recently called and uh, Barr, I uh, gutless pig. Uh, Your second defense secretary is not supporting you called you irresponsible. This week, you and your White House called your White House Chief of Staff, John Kelly, weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, a born loser. You called your first Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, dumb as a rock, and your first Defense Secretary, James Mattis, the world's most overrated general. You called your White House Press Secretary, Kayla Kennedy, milk toast, and multiple times, you've referred to your Transportation Secretary, Elaine Chao, as Mitch McConnell's China-loving wife. So why did you hire all of them in the first place? <laughs>
0: Could you imagine if someone interviewed you and you're they were like, OK, Ben, uh, Dennis McDonough said you were the dumbest person he's ever worked with. <laughs> yeah. Cody Keenan says he hates your guts and hopes you get hit by a car. Dan Pfeiffer, like that's just yeah. unloads on the guy. <laughs> <And then laughs> hearing, hearing Trump's like childish responses, like he's like a pig or whatever about Attorney General Barr. It's almost somehow worse. It makes him look so small.
1: It it really does. I mean, uh, it makes you wonder. I mean, like maybe Brett Baer just decided to become, you know, uh, Edward R. Murrow here. But it, it does make you wonder, like the Murdochs kind of f- fell out of, you know, like the Fox kind of continue to get Trump's back. But like we know from reporting that like the Murdochs aren't big Trump people. The yep. Wall Street Journal editorial page that they control has been pretty hard on Trump. Like I, I do wonder if that was kind of a shot across the bow. Like if this was a succession episode, you know. Logan Roy got sick of somebody and tried to elevate somebody. Like, the, I, 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 that's a space to watch. But, I mean, it, it does like it, it is pretty jarring to hear. That's basically the entire national security team. Like every <laughs> like single, literally. Pre, like literally every single member of the national security cabinet. You know, except for like the biggest hacks, like that O'Brien yeah, like guy, Rick yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it does. You know, like that has to kind of get through to some people. I think. You know. Um, I hope so. Yeah. Even Trump people have to be like, well, it's not a bad point, you know? But when you hear that, you also wonder, like, "It's it's why don't more people just do that,
0: you know? Yeah, those are very easy. Those are softball. I mean, I guess Brett. Brett Baer is much just sitting there thinking, like, I can't believe he agreed to do this interview. By the way, it just came out that Brett Baer is going to moderate the first Republican debate on August 23rd. (laughs) So I'm sure he's trying to get his, like, tough journalist bona fides kind of. Back into the discourse after all the embarrassing uh, emails and things came out about him in the Dominion lawsuit.
1: Well, and also it'll be interesting if like Trump uses that as an excuse to not do the debates, right? You know, definitely, definitely.
0: They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org/slash donation. That's unrefugees.org/slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not gonna go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. You're watching the events around the world that might freak you out We've got this election coming down the pike there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about that are anxious about stuff that makes you lose sleep and therapy can help get it off your chest with better help visit betterhelp.com/ crookedworld go today to get 10 percent off your first month that's better crooked crookedworld <laughs> I don't know if you had time to see this, Ben, because I know you're overseas, but right before we started recording, the New York Times published a report about one of the Trump Middle Eastern business deals. This is that uh, real estate golf deal in Oman. So it's a, we learn in this yeah. piece. Yeah, it's a good piece. It's worth reading. But like basically, it's an agreement to work with a Saudi company to develop a hotel and golf course in Oman. The deal according to the Times, puts Trump directly in business with the government of Oman and with this Saudi real estate company that has close ties to the Saudi government and royal family. The Times says it was the Saudi firm's idea to bring Trump into this deal. And that deal has given us something like $5 million already, but will give his family direct management over these properties for 30 years. Of course, also this, this, properties being built up by like foreign laborers in unsafe conditions basically slave labor but imagine running for president again when you are like in a a joint venture with a saudi and omani you know conglomerate
1: yeah i mean and it is like something that should just also be illegal i mean the, the part of the problem is yeah, that that's sure. actually legal even though it's like flagrantly corrupt and disgusting and like these are countries that have enormous interests in the united states and they're basically like Paying money into the pocket of someone who's running for president, um, like like that's a definition of a conflict of interest, but it's I, I would like to see some people in Congress try to legislate around what people who want to be president of the United States can do in terms of, you know, and we did this by the way, just so people like, it's not impossible. Like I know that obviously earlier in people's careers they are going to do business overseas, but there've been regulations around like how many years before and after you're in office, you can do this kind of business for for regular people who aren't president, you know, um, there yeah. should be some limitation on what you can do in this space. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but the other like really
0: I think. Maybe the biggest story of the weekend was uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken went to China for two days of meetings that had been delayed since the uh, the great Chinese spy balloon murder of 2023. So. I'm curious what your read was. It it seems like it went almost better than expected or at least incrementally. Tony spent a bunch of time with China's top foreign policy official. He spent time with the Chinese foreign minister. But the most positive sign was I think he got 35 minutes with Chinese President Xi Jinping himself and the vibes and the comments in that Xi meeting were more positive than even the lower-level meetings, where I think the Chinese kind of aired out more of their grievances and criticisms of like export controls and sanctions and policy towards Taiwan. Here's a clip of Tony on NPR talking about Taiwan and a little bit about the visit.
2: We have real concerns about uh, the direction that this has taken in recent years, where China has uh, taken um, uh, reckless actions. We have a fundamental understanding that um, differences... With regard to Taiwan, will be resolved peacefully. Uh, that uh, neither side will take any unilateral actions that could upset the status quo. Uh, we reiterated the policy that we followed from administration to administration, Republican and Democrat alike, uh, of uh, the One China policy. That's not changed. I made that uh, made that very clear. Uh, we don't support uh, Taiwan's uh, independence, um, and again, we uh, we oppose any unilateral unilateral actions by either side that would change the status quo.
0: So that's Tony's kind of going back to the the uh the original or, or at least longstanding US policy, not like riffing the way Biden has about whether you know the US might defend uh, an invasion of Taiwan. But Ben, w- one interesting rhetorical shift that we did see at these meetings is the US has gone from suggesting that the Chinese government might decide to provide weapons to Russia to use in the war in Ukraine to now they're urging China to remain vigilant to ensure that Chinese companies aren't supporting the Russian war effort. Um, and I was wondering if you thought that rhetorical shift was a sign that fears of China you know, getting involved in the war have abated, or if this is kind of like a clever way to make the same point in a little bit of a less caustic way?
1: I mean, first of all, it does matter that Xi Jinping met with Tony. I know this sounds like, you know, just diplomatic uh, performance, but like there's a real signaling that happens in the U.S.-China relationship between like when contacts happen and what level they happen. And the fact yeah, that Xi Jinping sure. made a point to meet with Tony even for like 35 minutes is them signaling they'd like to move into some de-escalation and some slightly improved set of circumstances. So that, that actually matters as as kind of, you know, protocol it seems um, on the on, it, it is telling that the U.S. made that comment. To, I kind of read it as. You know, there's been incredible specificities we talked about in like putting out intelligence around what we think is happening in terms of the war in Ukraine, most notably with obviously the the pre-war intelligence on Russia, but also on these red flags about China. To me it kind of signals that like we believe that there are Chinese entities providing that support, you know? So so to me it felt like a signaling of like hey, here's mm-hmm. what we're seeing. We know that the government itself may not have a policy of providing this assistance, but maybe there are these companies inside of China that let's face it, at the end of the day, they're all controlled by. It. No no company in China is going to be like, "You know what, we're going to do today. We're going to like" sell arms to Russia or sell military equipment to Russia or sell, you know, uniforms for the military to Russia. That's not happening without the approval of the Chinese government. So you're right that the, they were kind of, you know, by putting the the onus on like please be vigilant about these companies, it's less of a direct shot at them. But I think it is us shining a spotlight, us the United States, on the fact that like we think this is happening. Um, it may not be lethal equipment and maybe other ki- kinds of support. Um, and and it's a more polite way of trying to compel them to to take some steps. The Taiwan point, we love Tony, like God bless the man. Those are the exact talking points that like they would have been prepared for any like the the any US government spokesperson for the last 20 decades. years. And so for Tony to read them is actually a message to China. Like, hey, we're back on the script. You know, we're not looking to pick a fight on this. You made the important point, though, which is at some point between now and the election, Biden's going to be asked probably more than one time, you've said multiple times that you would like intervene militarily to support Taiwan, which is not actually U.S. policy. It'd be interesting to see if Biden sticks to that line or not. To me, that's going to be a very uh, notable thing to watch.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, and to your point about the, the Xi Jinping meeting, it's, did you ever watch that... Um god-awful VH1 reality show, The Pickup Artists?
1: I mean, I, I may have watched an episode or two, uh, you know, You're aware years. of it. so yeah, yeah,
0: I'm aware f- of it. F- for those who uh, aren't <laughs> as lame as us, it, it, it featured this creepy dude named Mystery. He had terrible facial hair and weird hats, and basically he gave advice to lame guys about how to get girls, and it always <laughs> boiled down to negging them, which is like being mean to people and making them feel insecure so they like you. It's just <laughs> the worst show ever, the worst advice ever. I feel like the Chinese are very good at negging us. They, like deny us routine meetings and make getting other routine meetings like this feel like a huge win. And I shouldn't say it's, it's not necessarily routine for the Chinese president to meet with our secretary of state, but like we should be having conversations up and down regardless. I'm with you. Like I'll take it. I do think the next, it's good. Yeah. The question I think, I mean, tell me if you agree, she and Biden will be in San Francisco in November at the APEC summit question is whether they get together in person there hopefully that's the kind of final piece of this this puzzle
1: yeah i think so and i think this is probably meant to kind of tee that up and and look when again this may seem like protocol but like it's a signal from both sides that they'd like to calm things down they'd like to to reestablish channels usually what happens if the presidents start meeting again we talked on previous podcasts about like the military to military channels Usually, those resume after the presidents are talking. Like it sets a tone that permeates down. And also, this is closely watched around the world. And most countries don't want the US and China to be as at loggerheads as they have been. It'll be received as a positive signal around the world. Like, okay, maybe like we can chill out a little bit about how fast things are escalating between the US and China. So it'll have market effects. Like it'll, you know, like the, the, it's actually like a 30 minute meeting that actually matters, uh, which is not always the case.
0: Yeah, for sure. And interestingly, as I mentioned around the world, I did notice that um, uh, not Xi Jinping, but I think like the number two official in the Chinese system was in Berlin for meetings with Olaf Scholz. So it's the first meetings between the Germans and the Chinese, I think for three years, mostly for COVID reasons. But like, it does seem like there's a bit of a thawing happening here between, you know, sort of the West and and the Chinese leadership.
1: Yeah, the Chinese, I mean, and look, to be clear about this, I I think this is actually partially the Chinese feeling like they don't have the strongest hand. Like their economy is not coming back through COVID in the same way that they thought it would. Like they, they, I think they are feeling like, you know, we need to take some of this edge off the relationship a bit too. The question is whether this impacts policy, because part of what China doesn't like is the U.S. tightening the squeeze on, you know, denying inputs and investments into the U.S., into the Chinese economy. Um, So it'll be interesting to see where this leads substantively, but we're all for talking. <laughs> That's certainly better than the alternative yeah. of not talking.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, so very separate, but you know, another like sort of slow burn issue we've been watching for a while is in Israel. Uh, a couple months back, we did a special episode about the changes that Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu had proposed to Israel's judicial system and how those changes could undercut democracy itself in Israel. If, if you want to get into more detail, check out the Israel on the Brink episode we did in May. But here's an update on on this process. So um, Netanyahu in the wake of all these huge protests, like every week in Israel, he suspended efforts to push forward these judicial changes. And he started negotiations with the opposition, with the president of the country, uh, to see if there's some sort of, you know, compromise, I think would end the protests, let some steam off for, for BB politically, but I think like ultimately, right. Get him what he wants. Those talks unraveled this week after Netanyahu tried to intervene in the current judicial selection process and see if he could get more judges named from his party and not from the opposition. So it's not a good sign. And then on Sunday, Ben, the Israeli cabinet approved a resolution that would shorten the process for approving settlement construction in the West Bank. This resolution gives approval authority for new settlements uh, to a right wing minister Name uh, Bezalel Smotrich, who was born, raised, and I think currently lives in a illegal settlement. Yeah. Uh, Smotrich has also <laughs> called for Israel to annex the West Bank. He doesn't believe there should be a Palestinian state, and he once called himself a proud homophobe. So this is a, a great you know leader in the Israeli uh, government right now. Yeah,
1: yeah. interesting. To yeah, be proud so of.
0: yeah, wonderful guy. So this this these changes. It sounds like esoteric, right? But it, it empowers this far right wing zealot to um, get into the settlement process, and it pulls back the ability for political leaders to intervene and delay settlement construction if, let's say, the the UN or the United States gets mad about it. So the government also advanced planning for over 4,500 housing units in West Bank settlements right on the eve of a visit from the US Assistant Secretary of State Barbara Leaf, this feels very familiar to UNB, Ben, because this happened to us on the eve of a Biden visit. Um, the Biden administration said is deeply troubled by the news, sort of, again, back to your, you know, sort of familiar talking points. Troubled or not, there was no talk about consequences. And on the contrary, it does seem like there's still this pretty intensive effort going on to broker a normalization agreement between Israel and in Saudi Arabia that would involve the US giving tons and tons of stuff in terms of security guarantees and you know nuclear infrastructure to the Saudis to get Bibi Netanyahu a huge political win as they are you know de facto annexing the West Bank so it doesn't feel like we're in a very good place there
1: It doesn't. I mean, and like, first of all, like, this is who these people are. This is who this government is. Like, this government believes in a settlement agenda. This government believes in the judicial changes that they tried to ram through uh, in the face of public pressure and then pull back. Like, just the fact that they kind of tactically retreated for a little bit. Um, after all those protests in Israel doesn't mean that they weren't going to come at these types of issues, and we see them coming back at these kinds of issues. This kind of total empowerment of the settler movement to be in charge of settlements, you know is a pretty unsettled message and and to me, and there's been like violence we've seen uh, uh, yeah, you know, in the West Bank flare up. um so th- nothing changing in terms of uh, treatment of the Palestinians as well and And you put your finger on it like right now, like, all reports are that, you know, there are these intensive discussions with the Saudis around a normalization deal where the most kind of problematic issue and we'd obviously have to see what the terms of the deal are and whether there are other elements that, that the US negotiates with respect to American interests but like basically the US would be giving a lot of things to Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, with security guarantees something in the nuclear space, uh, you know, defense sales, whatever um, in exchange for Saudi Arabia normalizing relations with Israel, which is you know, a huge boon for Israel, the, the fact that the Netanyahu government, knowing that that's happening, they know that's happening, is just literally like punching the United States in the stomach on the two issues that we constantly raise, which is backsliding on democracy in Israel yep. and treating the Palestinians. What does that say about Bibi Netanyahu's respect for... The United States of America, <laughs> you know, like it, wh- wh- why are we expending, why would we go to great lengths to provide enormous and difficult things to like help Israel uh, and Israeli government that is doing this? I, like it, it just like you would think that in the context of the U.S. doing something that would be very good for their government and for Bibi's politics, as you say, that they would at least put this on the back burner. Uh, and and so, you know, I hope that people call this out. This is complete and utter bullshit. And of course we expect it from BB, but man, if he's doing this, when the U S is going to great lengths to try to, to, to help him out, what's he going to do on the back end of that?
0: Yeah. And I think it probably speaks to the reality of the deal with the devil he made with this current government coalition where he promised them all these things, right? He promised this Smotrich guy who I think recently said, uh, that a, uh, a Palestinian village or town needed to be wiped out, like, you know, genocidal language. He promised him this role overseeing settlement construction. He put all these other sort of right-wing zealots in positions all across the government. So I kind of wonder, even if he wanted to slow some of these trains down, whether it comes to annexation or, uh, you know, generally sort of like eradicating any hope of a Palestinian state, whether he even could at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's definitely like, this is the direction he's gone. And this is why, you know, like this coalition, this particular government, um, this is the choice like BB's made. I guess the only reason he might be able to rein those people in is if he were communicating to them, hey, the U.S. is currently in like pretty important discussions with like well, the yeah, most course, important Arab state. Like maybe we shouldn't be doing this crazy stuff. Um, so it, just as a matter of, ta- of tactical respect for that process, Um, You'd expect him to show restraint, but you're right. Like he ultimately he's, you know, he's the front man for like a pretty, like, well, not pretty, very far right collection of characters that that will demand that this kind of action on settlements and this kind of action in terms of judiciary. So this stuff is not going away.
0: Yeah. And it's time to, uh, I think, update the policy and the talking points to reflect that reality.
1: By the way, like someone should go back and do a, a accounting and they can account past administrations. Who's it's not saying that bad enough, like the number of times it's the U.S. has been deeply concerned about oh. settlement announcements. It's like so it's, much concern, uh, so deeply, much deep concern. deeply concerned, you know,
0: profoundly we, we deplore these actions, yeah. uh, but won't do anything about them. let's talk Ukraine because, you know, not a ton of new major news there. I mean, I think the first thing that's worth just mentioning is that folks are probably, if you're waiting for like a day by day or week by week update on the Ukrainian counteroffensive in terms of progress, you probably shouldn't be. There's these scattered reports of like Ukrainian troops taking small bits of territory here and there, but this is going to take months and will be incredibly bloody, which is why it's very annoying when you see the sort of like leading MAGA voices on Twitter saying it's now a fact that the uh, that the counteroffensive has failed and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. kitchen cabinet. That's not the case. But it does seem like um, the Ukrainians are having some success with these behind the line strikes. Like I think they blew up a Russian ammo depot the other day this could be just them using this new long-range British missile, the storm shadow missiles that were given to them, or it could be these, you know, sort of cross-border actions. We don't really know. Um, Ben, I don't know if you saw this. The New York Times had an interesting piece about how challenging it's been for Ukraine to, like, get and maintain good weapons they talked about how you know they spent i think 800 million dollars worth of purchases that just were either partially or not at all fulfilled and that 30 percent of their stuff is under repair at any moment it was just sort of like an interesting window into it's not just about getting the stuff from the western partners about maintaining it and then i did also see that putin did a two-hour interview with a bunch of Russian military bloggers where he like gotten the weed on tactics and tanks destroyed and production of new stuff and disputes between the Wagner group and the Russian military. But it was just interesting to see him sort of try to pre spin the Ukrainian offensive and do his own little PR thing. Uh, even with these like, you know, 18 military zealots, basically they call themselves journalists.
1: Yeah. Well, that's interesting too, because the the, the, place that Putin's faced some pushback, right? Because they've shut down all opposition media, but he's kind of from the right and from these kind of military bloggers and these kind of nationalist, uh, ultra-nationalist telegram channels and the Wagner guys. And so to me, it's also kind of interesting that like, that's the audience that Putin needs to speak to, you know? Um, Like, he's a little worried about that and he's trying to chill those people out a little bit uh, and look like he's in control. Like, he hasn't done much of that. So he must felt the need to get ahead of you know, and frame the counteroffensive a bit, and show that he's uh, actually like invested in this because part of what he's done is just not talk about the war that much. Which I have to think, if you're Russian and you're seeing the casualties, it's going to start to grate on you that like he can't even acknowledge this, he can't even talk to us about this. Um, so it's a sign of, of, of some amount of pressure he might be feeling. But you're right on the counteroffensive. I mean, last time, you know, the the the, the success that the Ukrainians had around Kharkiv and Kherson didn't come till the fall, you know? Right. And so I think people basically have to realize this is going to be a timeline that plays out till the end of the year. But as they do have diminished stockpiles, like you're right, like the incentive for them to do these kind of behind the lines attacks is going to continue to go up.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, One of the really interesting Russia piece that I saw was, I guess there's a new book coming out called Spies, The Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. This book details what uh, US intelligence believes was a Russian plot to assassinate a defector, a Russian defector on US soil. So the, the Times excerpted or got a copy of the book and wrote it up. So this defector is a guy named Alexander Putiv. Uh, he's a former Russian intelligence officer who helped the US uncover the illegals program, which this happened when you and I were in in the White House, Ben, it was this sleeper cell network of, of these like deep cover Russian agents who live sort of normal lives in the US while trying to build contacts with Government officials, or academics, or whatever, whomever might provide them intelligence in the long run, it wasn't the most successful program, I would say. But the FBI arrested ten of them in in June of 2010 and later expelled them from the country in a prisoner exchange, and then also became the show of the Americans. That might be yeah. the most successful part here. Yeah. So, you know, Sergei Skripal was one of the people released in that exchange. You might have heard of him because he was a Russian military intelligence analyst who was selling secrets to the British, got caught, thrown in prison, came out in this release, and then the Russians. Tried to assassinate him while he was living in the UK with a nerve agent. So a- around the same time, uh Pudeev, this this other defector that the US had been working with uh, relocated to the Miami area. Uh, for some reason, he applied for a fishing license and registered to vote under his real name. And then that led to the Russians forcing some, you know, Mexican doctor they had leverage on to find his car and try to like surveil him. That guy got caught, got kind of roughed up in the process. And it led to this sort of like tit for tat where the US in 2021 imposed sanctions and expelled 10 Russian diplomats, including their chief of station. They responded in kind, et cetera. But I think the main takeaway then was if Putin is willing to assassinate these people on British and American soil, I'm not really sure what, Guardrails exist anymore. I guess like assassinating a, you know, CIA agent in Moscow would be kind of the next thing there.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've seen him like, you know, the detention of uh, you know, an American journalist that the but this is like stuff that didn't happen in the Cold War. You know, that that's part of what is so striking about it. Like for all the nuclear brinksmanship and geopolitical competition of the Cold War, the idea of like assassinations on on each other's territory, you know, there was some respect for. You know diplomatic niceties. And it does beg the question, a certain point, like we expelled these people, but like the, the ability to let the Russian government operate on US soil, like obviously they're going to need an embassy, but you could start to see restrictions on how many people can be there and what they can do. I mean, like they're assassinating people here, like as they've done in the United Kingdom. I think you have to kind of really look at like, can they operate here as like a normal foreign governor our soil? and obviously yeah. i'm not saying no diplomatic representation we need that we need the ability to have conversations but like you can put limits on that it, and it does strike me that they're just beyond uh, like a point of guard so that they've they're crossing all these different lines um and at a certain point you have to kind of adjust to that reality i think the u.s is doing that by the way but yeah like we've seen them literally assassinate multiple people in europe and the uk um, if they start, start doing the United States, like, and there, there's been reports, there's been some murky reports over the years, like there was a guy who turned up dead in a hotel room in DC yep. a few years yep. ago, and nobody could ever really figure out, you know, what happened? Was he drunk? Was he, but there, there, there was smoke there, but they never found the fire. But, you know, this does feel like something that could be part of Russia's escalation in general.
0: Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, also, how are you like a Russian double agent? You get sent to Miami in some secret CIA relocation program and you registered to vote under your own name like what,
1: what are we what are we doing here? I mean Kerry russell and 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 Matthew Reese were much better than that the Americans you know like those I was like, man, if the Russians actually had spies like that, that'd be a big problem um, yeah. you know the the the, the illegals were that you talked about those were people like they were like hanging out in the u s and just kind of sending some re- reports back about what they saw. It was not that it's not that exciting, yeah, it was not that exciting, although
0: wild a couple weeks for us when we learned about that and and rolled it up. Um, Two more quick things, then we're out of here. So The Washington Post Ben ran a very depressing report about how Facebook has been slowly agreeing to more and more demands from the Vietnamese government to stifle free speech and basically silence critics of the government. The Post reported that Facebook has, quote, uh, adopted an internal list of Vietnamese Communist Party officials who should not be criticized on Facebook. Uh, there's also this graph in the story. So Meta has tracked government censorship requests in Vietnam since 2017, according to its own transparency reports. As of June 2022, it had blocked more than 8,000 posts in the country, most for allegedly containing content opposing the Communist Party and the government of Vietnam or information that distorts slanders or insults organizations or individuals, the report says. So they're just taking down tons of stuff. Facebook back in the day used to be an important space for free expression in, in Vietnam. But now former Facebook employees say the company is basically agreed to far more draconian restrictions on speech than in other countries in the region. And this matters because, you know, for, for Facebook, Vietnam is their seventh largest market worldwide. Yeah. And again, the thing to understand here for Vietnamese people is that Facebook isn't just like an app that your your grandparents use that you don't anymore. It's like 70% of the roughly 100 million people in Vietnam use Facebook It has huge influence but this, you know, increasingly repressive government has worn Facebook down. It sounds like Facebook is no longer really fighting these requests. Maybe the staffers who used to work on these issues have been laid off. So just very depressing stuff here, you know, like then really the, the best thing Mark Zuckerberg has going for him is Elon Musk, like blotting out the sun when it comes to tech reporting, because their Facebook's reach and impact is far
1: greater than Twitter and any of these places much bigger much farther and like you know first of all in vietnam like you said it is massive in vietnam like it, like the like the interface of the in, in in vietnam is often through facebook right so it's not just like some extra app it's like people are doing everything on facebook they're checking the news they're messaging they're doing they're posting and like Keep in mind the next time you hear anything from Facebook about connecting people and the open internet and all the gobbledygook and talking points that they use, like that's bullshit. It's about profit. Because if it was actually about those things, it was actually about connection and openness and open, like then Facebook would not go along with like a, a government trying to control what is on their platform in this way. And I will say also, like, they have a bit of leverage. They're so sure. big in Vietnam. They're so big in Vietnam that if the government said we're taking down all of Facebook in Vietnam, I the government would have problems, right? Like I don't think they could do that given how much people rely on it. So, you know, like you said, they're not the only bad actor in the tech space. and <laughs> Elon Musk is cooperating with all manner of autocratic governments, but this is another one to, to 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 bear in mind the next time you hear uh, the Facebook uh, PR campaign on this stuff.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think what the government of the Vietnamese government figured out is like these guys won't draw any lines. So you can just keep pushing them and pushing and them, pushing them back. And, you know, to your point, the the story notes that Google takes down lots of stuff uh, on YouTube and in other places, like Facebook's not alone here and sort of yeah, getting these totally. censorship requests, but they're just kind of seemingly
1: acquiescing. Yeah, yeah. No, that. but that's a, an important point. But like they, I, I just, like, I wish they realized that there, there are yeah. other ways of approaching it. Yeah, just try.
0: Uh, Final thing. So, Ben, uh, it's a tough week for former Tory party prime ministers. Um, You talked about uh, Boris's resignation, Boris Johnson's resignation from Parliament last week with David Lammy. But since then, the report on Johnson's partying during COVID came out, and it's just like scathing. 106 pages. It's written by a seven-member committee from Parliament, some conservative, some Labour, one Scottish national party. In summary, it says Boris repeatedly lied to Parliament about following COVID rules at number 10, and then he lied again when he told investigators that he thought his original lies were true. And then he deliberately tried to mislead the investigative committee in all kinds of ways. And then finally... They basically gave him a look at this report as a courtesy before its release. He wrote that pissy letter that you talked about with Lammy resigned from parliament and attacked the committee he called it like a kangaroo court. So the committee was going to recommend suspending him from parliament for 10 days, but bumped it to 90 days, which is just an unheard of ban. So basically now you're at a point where like the only people defending Boris are the people he did favors for, like giving them knighthoods and other honorary titles. Oh, um, there's a petition I just saw demanding that uh, current Tory prime minister Rishi Sunak block all those special favors all the peerages that boris gave out at the end of his uh uh tenure so disaster for him and then speaking of disasters uh liz Truss, the other former tory prime minister was asked recently in an interview about the live stream that compared her 44 day tenure as prime minister to a rotting head of cabbage and she said quote i don't think it was particularly funny i think it's puerile so there you go ben Beg to differ, Liz.
1: out. Uh, I, I mean, actually, the whole world thought it was pretty funny. Um, it was pretty funny. It was objectively funny, I have to it's say. It was a cabbage. Uh, it was very funny. Yeah, it was very funny. And, uh, like, the Boris thing, it, like, on the one hand, it's nice to see that, they, like, apparently, like, you know, there are real consequences for lying. Like, can you imagine if members of Congress could be, like, suspended for a lie? <laughs> Like, there'd be a lot of suspensions No, it would be incredible. They'd be, they'd be handing down disp- suspensions like, you know, uh uh, Draymond Green, uh, playoff games or something. But like, <laughs> like the, the, the uh, the, 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 the crazy thing though, is like Boris isn't done, you know, t- in talking to Lammy, like the idea, you know, of him just kind of taking the the hit here, like pulling back, letting Rishi lose the next election and then coming back as you know, like, he's never going to go away. But like, this is about as damning as it gets. And like, you could just sense the frustration in this report because also like he lied, he did something stupid. And and it's the Trumpian thing he did is like, he would not admit it. It, it was like the Brett Barrett right. interview. Like if he'd just been like, you know what? Like we made a mistake. We shouldn't have this party, but like people were stressed out. I actually think like, you know, he wouldn't be prime minister, but people would be like, well, okay. You know, like the, 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 the fact that he like refuses to acknowledge that things happened that factually happened is what is so pathological about this guy and it's kind of dangerous. Cause like, if you're that crazy that people are like, when you do this, we have this evidence, we have this report and you're like, kangaroo court, you know, this is bullshit. Like this is what people are sick of.
0: Yeah. He, he won't admit, he won't give an inch on anything. And a lot yeah. of this stuff is coming out at the same time that the COVID inquiry that the Brits are doing about sort of like lessons learned and how to make sure this doesn't happen again is coming out and you're hearing these like gut wrenching stories from doctors and families who couldn't go to funerals. or couldn't be with loved ones. And you're like juxtaposing that with videos of Boris's staff, you know, fucking around and drinking and and dancing at number ten as they were putting in place all these rules. And it's just like inexcusable.
1: Yeah. One rule for everybody else and one set of rules for us and then no accountability for us. I mean, it's it's exactly what people hate about politics
0: exactly exactly uh okay well, that is it for us uh apologies if anyone heard uh crying babies or um lawnmowers or anything else in this room it's uh we're, we're doing this from home today but appreciate you guys listening and uh, i think we're back in the studio next week right ben
1: yeah yeah no i'm okay. back i'm not uh from like whatever country i am in. You know <laughs> i was gonna say like what
0: yeah am i home tomorrow i think i'm home next week anyway we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll figure <that>. it out <laughs> it'll be great talk to you guys next week see you Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mazuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week and check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support.